Most people aren't up for that. They want the quick magical, they want the, the quick answer. We want the quick everything, right? Instant gratification, the marshmallow theory. Give me one marshmallow now rather than two marshmallows two weeks later. You know, um, people want that. So they want the quick answers and I, I think that's silly because I don't think it's about the outcome. I think it is about the journey and about enjoying the whole process. And Ladies and gentlemen. Hi, everybody. Good evening. Are you ready? Keep this frequency clear. I know you're going to dig this. I am. Okay, here we go. Check, check it out. You're listening to the Martial Arts Media Podcast, where you, the martial arts school owner, gets insider tips and secrets from leading experts to help you build a more profitable martial arts business. Now, here's your host, the founder of martialartsmedia.com, George Faree. This podcast episode is the audio version from a video that was published on martialartsmedia.com. For the full episode, to download the transcript and get all the show notes, head over to martialartsmedia.com. Enjoy. Hey everyone, welcome to another Martial Arts Media Business Podcast. This is George Furie and I've got an exceptional guest with me today, John Wool. And uh, so I'm going to give a just a short little intro. So John... If you're not familiar who John is, uh, John is famous as one of the Dirty Dozen, meaning he is one of the first 12 non-Brazilian to uh, reach a, a black belt in jiu-jitsu, uh, one of the early adopters, and also the first Australian to receive a jiu-jitsu black belt. Welcome to the call, John. Yeah, thanks, George. Thanks for having me on. Cool. So, look, um, if we had to go through all the credentials and background, we'll probably take up all the time of the podcast. So, uh, and, and when it's, when somebody has their own Wikipedia page, I think that's where you should start and just go and read that. So, uh, right. I want to skip that. And, uh, I think I want to just, I want to just start with a bit of context, how I initially came across you, John. So back in, I think it was 2015, I was probably training jujitsu for about one year and, um, the club where I was training at, it was sort of a side gig, you know, they were a very successful karate school, but jiu-jitsu wasn't really the thing. And um, jiu-jitsu sort of crawled into my life and I felt like, all right, this is this is the thing that I'm going to do. And, you know, I'm going to, that's the only style I'm going to train. And so I was looking around Perth and I wasn't really, you know, well-versed in um, the know-how of which clubs do what and which style, you know, which different organizations and so forth. And um uh, I came across a podcast, uh, BJJ Brick, BJJ Brick podcast. Oh yeah, yeah. And uh, and I was listening to you talk, and I can't remember all the details, but I remember the one thing that stuck by me, which was the way you articulated stories and combined it with metaphors and your way of teaching. And that struck me as all right. Here's someone that doesn't just know martial arts, but know the delivery aspect of how to teach it and how to articulate it. So I thought we could just start straight there. How did that develop? That side, obviously, you have lots of you know years and years of martial arts experience in jiu-jitsu and, and many other styles. But where did this concept of teaching develop on how you articulate with stories, metaphors, and so forth? Well, I think that the, the way that I started, first of all, I didn't have, even though I started in a traditional martial arts background, you know, meaning Taekwondo, karate. I, I did some freestyle wrestling and all of that. That, that was just like my first toe in the water. My real experience was gained in Southeast Asia, um, where I did a lot of traveling back and forth and training over there in the formative years of my life, you know, between like the age of 17, 18 through to my mid twenties. And so the way that I was learning was by looking, uh, looking and analyzing because I couldn't speak the languages, George, right? I mean, when I first went over there, you go to a foreign country. I don't know whether they were giving me good instruction or not. Now I can hazard a guess, probably not. Um, just like most people, they're just saying things and, you know, so, but, but because I couldn't speak the, the language, at least initially until I learned, you know, how to speak Indonesian or different languages. Prior to that, I'd be looking. I would figure out who's the best guy, what's he doing, what's he doing that's different from the, the 
everyone else and try and um, model that. So I became, my, my learning style was one of a, like an autodidactic style of learning how to teach myself through modeling. And that in itself, I think, puts you on a different road than most people. You know, because you've got to look and you've got to analyze and you've got to do comparative analysis and all that kind of stuff. So I was always like that. And then um, I, I think that speaking is just thinking out loud. So that's the way I was thinking. I was always thinking analytically about things. And then when I started teaching, to the extent that I did start teaching way back, I, I was just doing that out loud. And that's how I started. And then I had a few influences that were non-martial arts people. Um, and I thought, wow, I, I would like to be able to sound like them and be effective in the same ways that they were being effective, but in martial arts, on the martial arts landscape rather than in the landscape that they were on. Robert Kiyosaki was one. Okay. I mean, nowadays people might know Robert Kiyosaki, the guy who wrote Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and the guy who's shilling gold and Bitcoin. But prior to that, way back, I'm talking 35 years ago, I met Robert, Robert I spent a few weeks with him, and I was astounded. Like, I was really impressed by his communication style, teaching through analogy, gamifying, gamifying lessons that he wanted to impart to other people. And I thought, wow, I'd like to be like that, but in the martial arts landscape. So that kind of got me going that way. And then I guess the short answer to your question is, so that was the beginning, the catalyst, if you like. I was always analytical because of my where I started training in other countries, not being able to speak the language, so I had to be analytical. I was influenced by him and a couple of other people and thought, wow, they really do well in what, in their own thing. I wonder if I can do that in my own area of interest, martial arts. And then the next thing, so I combine those two things. So every time I took a class, I would debrief myself with notes. If I set it this way, I got that result. If I changed it around a little bit, I got a different result. So I debriefed myself for probably 20,000 classes. Wow. And I stopped doing it. <laughs> That's how I kind of developed my own teaching style. All right. So, so it's a lot of fine tuning and refining because what you're mentioning here is you're actually debriefing every class and being very analytical about the approach, really a refining process over the years. Yes. Yes. Okay, cool. A couple of things that you touched on, and I was at your seminar a couple of days ago at, at a Metcalf gym at Anna Gym here in Perth, and uh, a couple of things that you said that, that really resonated with you, with, with me. And, um, you know, one part I'm trying to listen for, the jiu-jitsu knowledge, and um, the other things is, oh, that, that really struck me. One thing that you mentioned was, I was talking about a black belt brain and talking about how you develop as a, as a martial artist, as a black belt, and how it's kind of surprises you that people don't apply that all, all out in, in business. I've used a fraction of that analogy before when we work with martial arts school owners just about growing growing their schools and and really tying that back. Well, you know, if you really, if, if that's how far you get with your art and you develop that as a mindset, then how, why, why is it not being applied elsewhere in business? Yeah. In business and in life. So I want to ask you, John, where do you feel that people actually get stuck, that they that they're not making this a way of life in all aspects of life. I think it is. It is a strange. It's strange to me, George, that that people don't. I I, I can't relate to that very well <laughs> uh, because I can't see how if you do something here and you the approach you take here works for you, then I just do not understand why that you don't take the same approach everywhere else. I, I don't get it. I was I was always that way. It's just a matter of how much time you allocate, in my view, meaning, meaning that if you take an approach to something, growing potatoes or, you know, designing houses or doing jiu-jitsu or cooking, 
and it's working for you, like if you're methodical with your cooking, you know, you, you go, well, I want to learn to cook. I'm interested in how to do that. So I, I'll, I'll find some people who are really good at doing that and I'll do what they do when they have a recipe. And so, okay, so if I follow his recipe exactly, I should get something pretty similar. So to me, that's like a, an absolute no-brainer. Why would I try to reinvent the wheel? What? Why would I not do that, follow the recipe? So when, when I see people trying to bake a cake, to pursue the analogy further, the recipe has eight ingredients mixed in this order, but they, they can only bother using five ingredients and not using the same order. I do not understand why they do that. It is absolutely beyond me. Worse, they expect or complain that they don't get the same result as that person when clearly they're only using five out of eight ingredients. I don't understand. Um, so I don't know like why, why people don't do it. They, they have unre- people are delusional. Like a lot of people, clearly when you look around the planet as a species, human beings are very, very happy to delude themselves at every turn. And to think that we can get this done, but without doing the same work as the, the, the person we're trying to model is kind of delusional. It's magical thinking. Perhaps that's what it is. And human beings, as we can both well imagine without drilling down too much, are awesome at magical thinking. <laughs> like we are masters of bullshit, like, and, and convincing ourselves that, you know, all these untrue things are true because it makes us feel better. And if I want to, you know, up, apply that same magical thinking to baking a cake, look, I can make the cake without. Do I really need the eggs? I can't be bothered going to the shop. I'll do, I'll do it without the eggs. I might think that, but, um, you know, that's again, it falls into the category of magical thinking to me. I think the black belt mindset, if you, you and I are going to call that such a thing, to me, it's very personal. It's different for every black belt. You know, who am I to make a statement about what that means? But for me, what is a black belt in BJJ? What is a black belt mind? How is that different from a, a brand new white belt mind? I don't think it's got much to do with the amount of techniques you know or don't know. I don't think that's, that's the thing. Because some black belts know 1,500 techniques and other ones might only know 300 techniques, but it's not about, it's about how you use whatever techniques you know. By the time you're a black belt, you want to, in my view, have developed an appreciation for nuance and detail. And you, you realize that small nuance, small details can make a giant difference to and that's something as a beginner you don't realise. You're just looking for the big things. And then as a black belt, you realise that by having your fingers that way or pushing that way, it's a giant, it's a big difference in outcomes. So that's what I mean when I say a black belt mindset. Someone who's developed a palate for nuance and detail. Like, like coffee, you know. What's the difference between a, someone who's a great barista and someone who doesn't know how to do it? They have developed a palate coffee yeah um and that's something that takes a long time to develop with that kind of mindset if you can develop have an appreciation for nuance and detail and the importance of nuance and detail and it's how relevant that is to outcomes then it might occur it should occur to everyone that the same thing applies irrespective of the subject matter (laughs) if we're growing vegetables I still need to figure out what are the small little things that my grandma does to grow a tomato, you know, that, that she gets an, an outstanding result. I don't. I've got to do all the things that she's doing, not just the convenient things that she's doing. Dig a hole, proceeds in, cover it up, water it. That's the convenient stuff. What are all the little inconvenient things that she's doing, but they make a big difference in outcome? I think. People, most people aren't up for that. They want the quick magical, they want the, the quick answer. We want the quick everything, right? Instant gratification, the marshmallow theory. Give me one marshmallow now rather than two marshmallows 
two weeks later, you know, um, people want that. So they want the quick answers and I, I think that's silly because I don't think it's about the outcome. I think it is about the journey and about enjoying the whole process. And As a dad and having a teenage son, I think that was the, one of the hardest concepts to actually get across to my son. You know, when uh, I'm taking music, for example, we, uh, you know, I used to play drums when I was a kid and, uh, and I remember trying to learn and getting this tape cassette of Enter Sandman and I've never seen somebody sit in front of drums and I'm like trying to figure where my arms go and I'm listening and I'm rewinding and forwarding. And, you know, when my son started playing when he was four years old at the time when he was enjoying it and playing it, yeah, it was YouTube and it was there and the outcome is already achieved visually. So the hard work almost feels unnecessary. And I, I think that that takes away a lot of resilience in, in kids that it's just, they don't see the work, they just, the outcome is is already visible. But on that, so you, we, you know, on the topic of, of Black Belt Mind and, and, and talking about uh, recipes and, and I guess what it really comes down to then is, is habits and problem solving. Do you have sort of a, and I don't want to put you on the spot, but it, do you have sort of a recipe in mind or something that, you know, when, that you have developed that if you took on a new skill or whether it's an investing or just anything other than jujitsu, that you have this methodology of how you go about approaching things? Well, we, we have a big advantage nowadays, of course, as you just alluded to, you know, YouTube, and we've got such, so much information that, you know, we didn't have when we were, you know, kids, we didn't have that. So that's a, that's, that's, that's both a good thing and a bad thing. <laughs> um, so, but at least I'll use the good thing. So I, I will tend to go out and find out, like, I'll try to get the big picture first. I'll, if I'm going to build a puzzle, like a jigsaw puzzle, I want to see the front of the box because I want to see what am I, what am I trying to build here? So that's, um, something that is, is kind of important. I remember doing that experiment way back. You know, I've got a bunch of jigsaw puzzles, got a bunch of people all divided up. I gave half the box and the jigsaw puzzle, the other half just the same puzzle but in plastic bags. Click, stopwatch, go. I mean, who finishes the puzzle? The people that know what they're building and the other guys are still trying to figure out it's three ducks in a pond. You know, that they're, they're clueless. But the first thing I always try to do is I try to take a macro view, step back. What is it? What's, what's the whole, what's the big picture? And YouTube's awesome for that. You know, you can you can do that. So I try to get the big picture first. Okay, I'll give you an example of something more concrete. I designed uh, and built my own home, the one that I'm sitting in now. Um, so what did I do? Well, I just went online and I, I Googled, very simply, best 15 architects of all time. Well, pretty simple. <laughs> and then... Each architect, what are their top three houses of their career or buildings or something? So now I've got three times 15, 45 pictures. Then I ask, so I've got the, the big picture of what's happened in architecture. Now I look at those 45 pictures and go, what do I like? Well, I don't like 40 of them. That leaves five. I like, uh, you know, falling water, the house falling water. What's the architect? Who's the architect? The famous? Oh my God! Slipped my mind. Can't help. <laughs> Can't help. Falling water. Everyone's listening to this, going idiot. It's anyway. Um, but I like the look. I go. Oh, I like the look of that. I like the look of that. I like the look of that. So I get those things, and then I start. Then I went. Got Google SketchUp. Spent fifteen hours trying to learn how to do Google SketchUp. And then I kind of drew some stuff that looked like you know, what they'd done and then went from there. You know, so I don't think it's hard. So I, I guess my approach is always try to get the big picture first, get, get a feeling what I like about it. Um, then I try to find some people who have done it before me, which is like lots. Then try to isolate the best ones. And then kind of model, get, see if I can get into their head a little bit, like, wow, you know, what are they thinking about? And then, and then I go from there. 
Um, I'm also okay with making mistakes. I'm I'm okay with that, as long as it's not catastrophic. You know, as long as it's small mistakes, you need to make a lot of them. You don't want to make big mistakes that you can't come back from. So I'm conservative in that way. I'm up for making mistakes. I'd rather make lots of little ones that don't cost me much rather than all in and make a big one. You know, investing in cryptocurrency. Put 1% of your portfolio in and make as many mistakes as you want. And then when you figure it out, then put in another 2% and you're good to go, right? You don't go all in. Like, <laughs> I mean, every now and again, someone goes all in, but then someone, that someone picks the time right, gets it all right, and they do exceptionally well. And we hear about him. <laughs> and we hear about that guy because of what it's called, survivor bias. You don't hear about the other 99 who went belly up. So... <laughs> I'm a bit. I'm much more fearful, <laughs> and I'll, I will go. I'll go all in, but with one percent. You know, you know what I mean. Yeah, I perfect. Know, yeah, perfect. So I've got. Um, I guess if, if I had to break it down of what I got from that big picture, uh, big picture, get a clear understanding, uh, find out what you actually want out of this thing. Like, what do you like? Uh, boil it down into who can you model, and then look for the little attention to detail, the nuances. And, yes, yeah, exactly, yes. And I guess the, the, the last thing, which which uh, which is always the thing that no one does, is take action. Take action okay. and do it, yeah. Yeah, and uh, the reason why I don't feel a problem, like I don't seem to have a problem with pulling the trigger uh, or taking action, is um, I actually enjoy that process that we just talked about. That That's the fun for me. Right? That is the fun. Like, like the outcome is, isn't, I'm not waiting to move into my house to enjoy it. You know, I'm not waiting to take the trip to enjoy it. I enjoy the planning of it, of the hike or the whatever it is. You know, and I enjoy sitting down if it's about, you know, Bitcoin or it's about whatever it is. I enjoy the process of, that, that thing we're talking about, I actually like that. I like that bit. It's almost like, oh, you know, it's a bit of a letdown when you get it done because that process has, in a way, ended. Um, the, the, the fun is the training to black belt. The black belt shouldn't be, the, it shouldn't be like, I'm not having fun until I get the black belt. <laughs> That's depressing. <laughs> <laughs> that is depressing. It's like, well, well, anyone who's like that will never get it. Because it's just too difficult. That is the fun, you know. So, so therefore, yeah, I, I think you 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 enjoy the whole thing. I enjoy learning, and I enjoy learning about new stuff, and I enjoy that like uncertainty, trying to figure it out, trying to put the you know the the bits of the puzzle together to sit back and see the picture. It's not that I. It's all miserable until then. Oh, it's done. Beautiful picture. Two ducks in a pond. Like no. The fun is doing it. Yeah. Perfect. I, I think uh, something that you said on, on Sunday that goes well with that is, in a way, there's no such a, such a thing as a bad position in jiu-jitsu, um, yeah. meaning that you can put yourself in some situations that where you're going to make mistakes and be vulnerable and still move, move through it. Yes, any, anything. Like if we're doing jiu-jitsu, like any position – Unless you're telling me that you know everything there is to know about that position, like if it's a bad position, so-called bad position underneath side control, do you know everything about escaping and this and that and this and that? Because if you did, you wouldn't be there. Right? So you don't. So what do you need to do? You need to spend more time there. So in other words, wherever you are is exactly where you need to be. So... Enjoy it. Yeah, it's a kind of. It, it sounds like a, a Buddhist, a Zen thing, but it's it's not. It's it's just real. Like wherever you are is exactly where you need to be. And if you're stuck underneath side control, then that's exactly where you need to be. Um, and you need to be learning. And then the same thing with everything else in life. You know, if you're if you've got financial drama or whatever, and you're trying to fix that, then that's exactly where you need to be. You know, someone giving you $5 million to make your problems away is not going to make your problems go away. It's just going to put a Band-Aid over it. But you, you need to be wherever it is. So you may as well enjoy it because eventually 
it will go away. You won't be there. You'll be somewhere else with another set of challenges or whatever. So it's all good. It's all good. <laughs> it's all good. Yeah. So I want to talk about things that uh, – two things, actually, if we change gears just slightly. Uh, uh, obviously, coming out of, uh, out of things like COVID, uh, you mentioned it's been your best year yet. And I want to talk a bit about club culture and things like that. But I think first, probably a good place to start, as I mentioned it, pandemic, if you want to call it that, um, you know, COVID presented a lot of challenges, interesting challenges for a lot of schools and a lot of martial arts styles, jujitsu and everyone else. I know it made a lot of people adapt. You know, a lot of people crawled in, in a hole and waited for it to go over. Some people took it on, uh, yeah. took different directions in business. How, how was the experience for you? We shut, where I am in Victoria, Australia, we shut down for 10 months, meaning our academy shut down for 10 months. So like everyone else, at the beginning, I thought, oh, this might be two weeks or might even be three weeks. So it was like, awesome. We get to take over a two-week break and then we're going to be back. And then two weeks turned into three weeks. So at that point, three, four weeks, uh-oh, this is going to go on for a while. Then it was like a little bit, become a little bit worrisome. By worrisome, what I mean by that is, it's unprecedented. I've never been here before. We've never experienced this before. If this goes on for three months, six months, nine months, what's going to happen to my academy, my martial arts school? Like, I don't know. Like, because I've got, there's no historical precedent. Do they all come back? Have they all taken up skateboarding? Like, I don't know. Who knows, right? As it turns out, they all came back the night I came back. But I didn't know that at the time. So I just made the best of it. Had a, we had a great time. My wife and I did a lot of stuff we wouldn't normally do because you're forced to. So go for bike rides and walks and this and all that. So great. Pointed my brain at a few things that don't really interest me that much, but I know I've got to do it. You know, like my self-managed super fund, my finances. I'm not interested in that kind of stuff, but I've got the time now, so I may as well look at it. And it's amazing when you point your brain at it and tweak a few things, how how, how much better things get. <laughs> you know, it only, have, it only takes 5% of your attention is infinitely better than 0% of your attention. <laughs> so... Uh, I pointed my mind at a few things that didn't interest me, but I've got nothing else to do, so I might as well do that. So that, wow, that, that was good. So it was all of that. But it was interesting to me how what I learned from it is it was really like pressing the pause button on a movie, going away for 10 months, coming back, and I just pressed play, and the movie started playing again. So I can't tell. I cannot... A week later, after we started again, I could not tell that there'd been a break. The only thing was that I had not opened my academy door for 10 months. That's good to know. Yeah. As it ever happens again. It's also heartwarming to know, you know, that everyone was pretty keen to get back to training. Um, I, I didn't. But I, I did, I did a, a lot of schools struggled because I know a lot of schools and a lot of them struggled. And a lot of them struggled because they were one – they were completely unprepared for a black swan event. So for those who don't know what black swan event means, you know, it's a, just a way of saying, uh, it's a book by, what is it, Nassim Taylor, is that right? Um, and he wrote a book called The Black Swan, and basically it just means a completely unexpected event. So when there's a completely unexpected event, you can't, it's difficult, most people don't prepare for it because to prepare for things means you kind of expect it. <laughs> so an unexpected thing like an asteroid hitting New York uh, um, or a pandemic, most people, are un they're not prepared for it. So that taught a lot of people a lesson. They need to make sure they have six to 12 months of money put aside for an emergency. They need to make sure, you know, all these kind of things. Most people didn't, so they needed, they, they were 100% reliant on their income. You know, that must have put a lot of stress on those people. I didn't need any income. I've got enough income put aside for another 20 years. 
So I don't need any. So to me, I just went, yeah, cup of coffee, go for a bike ride, you know, whatever. I was just sad that I couldn't see the people who I normally see and train on the mat and do teaching, which I love doing. The money wasn't a part. I didn't care about that. So that this is that's interesting. I, I think now people, they should go, you know what, maybe we should start saving 20% of our income, like for a rainy day. Not, not just not for retirement. I'm talking about just for an emergency you should get square because emergencies clearly happen every now and again. Some businesses fell over. You know, now I take a harsh view of that, probably a bit unfair, but I say, you know what, that's Darwinian forces at play. You're out. Next. Bit mean, but hey, that's nature. Um, you were weak enough to fall over. Yeah, you don't deserve to. You don't deserve to trade <laughs> in the marketplace. It's interesting. My wife and I had that conversation. You know about all these businesses closing, and I, I know, like, I mean, it, it, it always saddens me. You know, if the business does go down, but I also, I also think, you know, was was that business going down already? Was COVID just a tipping point? Yes. Yeah. I think you're perhaps wrong. I mean, if you're on that, if you're walking such a fine line, really, do you want to do that? Walk such a fine line for the rest of your life? Really? I'd be getting another job, like, or another two jobs. I mean, someone asked me the other day, it was only five minutes, it was after a class, and I didn't have any time, but they said, oh, I heard you got some properties. You, uh, So how do you do that? I go, what a question to ask me and I've got five minutes on the way I said do you have a job and he goes yeah I've got a job what do you do I do this how much do you earn this much okay here's my first thing you need two jobs or maybe three jobs go get two more jobs (laughs) and once you've got two jobs and you can start and you're saving all the income from those extra jobs then come and ask me the next step (laughs) you've got to have some fat or some Leeway. I don't think you can be walking along, living, living on such a fine margin. That's not a great way to do life. I don't think because the slightest little earthquake <laughs> and you're dead. You know. I used to call it. You know what I used to call it, George? A bug on a leaf. So bug on a leaf. A bug on a leaf. Like so, in the canopy of the rainforest, a branch has fallen down. It's opened up a hole. A little ray of sunshine comes down and it, it, it makes this little one meter square ecosystem with certain little mosses and certain leaves and it's a certain temperature. And if you're a bug that's beautifully acclimated for that one square meter, that is not a good place to be. Like <laughs> you've got no options, you can't move anywhere. If there's a five degree change in temperature, you're dead. Like, I don't want to be that delicate an organism. <laughs> I want to be like the cockroach. <laughs> Shit. It can be minus 20, it can be plus 40, there can be wind, no wind, it can be a radiation, a nuclear bomb can go off. I'm golden. You <laughs> know, that's why I want to be the cockroach. Delicate <laughs> bug in a beautiful little environment. <laughs> Oh, I love that. Change gears again just a little. Um, I was chatting to one of your one of your students who, who works with us, Sam Sam Broughton. Um, actually, actually, I I, um, I was on your website last night, uh, bjj.com.au. By the way, and I know it's a side note, but uh, what a great domain name, bjj.com.au. I'm a bit of a domain name nerd. Early adopter. Early adopter is what it's called. Yeah, <laughs> there we go. That if, if if you had any questions about the early adopter, there it there it is. <laughs> um, and I was looking through the list of black belts. Uh, Some of the people that we work with that's on that list: Brett Fenton, uh, Cam Rowe, Mike Fuchs, Pass, also Carl Norton, and uh, Sam. But shout out to Sam and um, Ted, you know, we were talking about questions and things that we should discuss. And um, and he mentioned I should ask you about club culture. Club culture and the relationship between student and teacher. I think it's really important. For me, club culture, it's purely a side benefit that that is also good for business. 
I am not that interested in business. You know, it might not look like that from the outside. People go, oh, hang on, you've got all the stuff that you got and you've got this and that. You about I couldn't care less about it. It's a byproduct of being passionate about what I do and caring about what I do. Now, the analogy I'll give you just before, you might have to remind me about the culture question. I'll yes, just that's contract And this was an analogy told to me by Robert Kiyosaki, who was talking about Buckminster Fuller, who wrote a book called The Critical Path. And Buckminster Fuller was the most inspiring person. He was Robert Kiyosaki's hero. And Buckminster Fuller gave this analogy, and I'll repeat it here. He says, how you know that you're doing that you're doing life well is by the consequences of your action. In other words, and the analogy used was a bee goes around being a bee and it wants to collect pollen from the flowers. It doesn't even know about the greater thing, which is cross-pollinization of flowers. It just thinks it wants to go and collect the pollen. But the greater processional effect of it doing what it's doing is that it's cross-pollinating flowers and we get these gardens and we get all this stuff. And he says, so you can tell the bee is being true to its beeness because of the cross-pollinization that it may even be unaware of. I kind of like that idea. To me, the money side and the business side and the successful stuff like that is the cross-pollinization of flowers. I, as the bee, actually don't care about that. I care about being passionate about what I'm doing and I'm interested in it. How I know I'm doing it right is if I step back or someone points out that cross-pollinization happened. That is, you know, I've got right. my house, I've got no debts, I've got enough money for 20 years and all that shit that I don't care about. You know what I'm saying? Um, whereas I think a lot of people chase that stuff. They're, if they're chasing the effect, they're chasing the effect, then maybe they're not truly being tethered to their passion or their mission. So going back to your question about club culture, it's very important to me. Not It has certain benefits, which I don't care about, but I'm passionate about what I do and teaching and my school So, because that's an extension of my home. My mat, when I'm on the mat, it's kind of like an extension of my home. It's another room in my house. So it's not like business separate. It's part of who I am, defines who I am. So I want that to be comfortable and I want it to be the way. Like if you had to run a barbecue at your house, you're not going to have people come to the barbecue who you don't like, who aren't behaving well. And, and my school's just like that, except it's not a barbecue, it's training. So I'm not going to have people in there who don't gel with the atmosphere that I want to create. Now, weirdly, paradoxically, like when people in martial arts business, I guess, which I'm no, I'm no business guru. I, what do I know about business? I just know how to do life. But business... If they're just focusing on business and the numbers, then one of the things I see happening is that they think more customers are better because it's more money. And that, to me, I disagree with because that, that means they'll train anyone for money. And now they've got people in there who are acting counter to the culture they're trying to build. So I think that some of their, what they want to do is counterintuitive They've got to get identified and get rid of the 10% of their school that's taken away from the culture they're trying to build. That is counterintuitive to a purely business person who's trying to get as many customers as he can. I don't give a shit about customers. Customer 
getting numbers. I don't care about that. <laughs> I, I, I think you just answered the first topic we discussed. You know, when we were talking about having a black belt brain and applying yourself and why people aren't succeeding in other areas of life. And it could be that it's just the wrong why. It's, it's following the wrong drive and focusing on the wrong thing and all these side effects possibly aren't, aren't happening. You'll be very aware, as anyone who's done any kind of business or, I mean, talking about saving money, investing money, superannuation, American 401k, you know, whatever it is. You need to do whatever it is you're doing for a long time for this to work. Right? Mostly there's not shortcuts. Sometimes you get one of uh, you know, you can win that's lotto. You can you can buy a hundred Bitcoin when it's five dollars, but it wasn't genius, it was just luck, right? So most of the time, whatever you've got to do, you've got to do it for 10 or 20 years, whether it's investing in property, it's not a five-year gig, it's a it's a 10 to 20-year plan. Saving 20% of your income and reinvesting is a 20-year plan. Learning a new language is a 10-year plan. It's not a three-month plan. So everything's a 10-year plan. Everything's a 10-year plan, let's say. But what I really mean is 20 years. But if everything's a 10-year plan, our approach has to be the kind of approach that I can sustain for that long. So there's even another reason why I want to be very careful about the way I approach it. I have to be happy <laughs> with it so that I can keep doing that for the 10 or 15 or 20 years it's going to take to get these peripheral benefits from it. So, I mean, you could do all these business. I, you know, I remember going to America a lot way back and, you know, some of these martial art conventions and stuff, right, where it's all business tricks, how to do business tricks. To trick people into joining your school so you can make a lot of money. All these suits walking around giving lectures about business tricks made me sick. <laughs> One, because none of them, I didn't, I, I wasn't impressed with any of them as martial artists. So there's that. And the second thing is how long could, it, could they do that for before they wanted to just woke up one day and wanted to shoot themselves in the head, and some of them did. Because it, they, they, they're, they're not really, they're just doing tricks and they're not connected to their purpose and passion. They're too busy learning the tricks. I think you've got to do, you've got to take a, it sounds all green and stuff, but you've got to take a sustainable approach to whatever it is you're doing. Because if you take a sustainable approach, you'll be happier as a human being. Your relationships will be better. You'll be a better person. And you'll be able to do it for 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 years. And even if you do a bad job, if you do it for 40 years and save 10% of what you earn, you'll be a millionaire a couple of times over. If we kept it. I take that approach. Got to be sustainable. <laughs> Love it. Uh John, I want to be conscious of your time. I've got one more, one okay. more question for you. Um, I, I so resonate with the tricks because, you know, I mean, what, what got me into working with martial arts school owners was the fact that there was a business model where it comes from passion and drive and something with some essence. And coming from that online marketing space, it, it is a, it's a, it's a, it's a place full of hype and tricks. It was never there when I started working with martial arts school owners, but, um, I was sorely disappointed when it started to creep in. And I'm, I'm very against that because it's, it's tiring and it's not sustainable. Um, chasing tricks means your business is chasing tricks, but it's, it's kind of what we, what we spoke about in the beginning of not being resilient and working on the things that actually brings results over time. It's, it's dabble here and dabble here. And, uh, yeah, like I always say to my clients, just put the horse flaps on and work your plan, do your thing. <laughs> Do all these things that a lot of these American people do. I don't, I don't do those things, but I've got a waiting list of 103 people to join my school. I haven't, I don't do the tricks. What I do is I do, I do my job well. I care about planning my classes. I care about the class. I care about getting outcomes 
on the mat, getting results, the culture, creative, you know. Obviously, there has to be some things. In, there's got to be some basics in place so that it, you automate the things you don't want to, that you don't care about, like payments. Good that they're automated. I don't have to care about that. Or advertising. We don't do much advertising, but pre-COVID, we were dropping flyers out. So I wouldn't reactively market. I just do 60,000 flyers, give them to the guy and say, put out 5,000 a month and call me when you run out. <laughs> so I automate the things that I'm uninterested in. Automate the things you're uninterested in. Just make it automatic so you don't have to attend to it ever again. <laughs> and focus on the product. My business advice. <laughs> but but so, I like automating the things. I know I should do these things. You know, so so I'm not I'm not saying you shouldn't do things. I'm just saying it shouldn't be all about trying to find somebody to trick people. <laughs> That's no good. You don't want that. <laughs> when, when COVID happened, a lot of the martial arts schools were begging their students to keep paying the money. Keep paying my fees. I'm going to die. You, if you want your martial arts school to be still here when COVID's over, you need to keep paying me. Uh, I'll teach you a Zoom class on stretching so that you feel like you're getting something for your $100 a month. I didn't do it. I just stopped everyone's fee straight away because leaders should eat last. If anyone's going to suffer, it's going to be me, not my students. And so I stopped everyone's fees right away. If I need, if I need money, I'll go. If I did need money and I wasn't, if I wasn't organized and squared away and I was owing money, I would go and get a job at McDonald's or digging holes or whatever I needed to do, like every other human being. And then I would uh, live on that and that's what – so I stopped it. I bought a lot of goodwill by doing that. And that goodwill that I got – and when I came back about eight weeks before Christmas, I didn't turn their fees back on. I said, I'll give you six weeks. Um, no one's going to pay fees for the rest of 2020. It's on me at my school. Enjoy it because I know everyone's having a difficult time. As it turns out, the goodwill that I that I got for that was way worth way more in dollar terms than what I would have got by begging for money. So, you know, so the same thing I'll say to a lot of people, like what I say to a monk in Thailand, hey, you want money? Go get a job like everyone else. I think that we need to show leadership. Well, we don't have to. The way I view, I view it is that I have a, a leadership role at my school and now if I want to go beyond that, outside the circle of my mat, into the community, and if I'm calling myself a leader, which I'm not really, people are, but if that's the role I have, I should show some leadership and suck it up. <laughs> um, you know, so... I think all of that's a important. And life is, it's not always easy. You know, it's, it's difficult. So it's difficult for lots of people. We need to show that we can get through that, that we can suck it up. You know, it's like most things. A dip is followed, rainy day is followed by a sunny day. You just gotta, you just gotta wait. You may as well make the best of the rainy day, enjoy it because it's gonna go away and then it's gonna be too hot. And then everyone will be complaining about it being too hot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I got to admit, John, because uh, I, I remember you sharing that, that post about shutting down and, and everything. And um, I, I got to admit, I was sort of on the, I was on the two sides of it because, um, you know, I had a lot of clients that, uh, that I was concerned about. Like, if you do that, you might not be here in two months, you know, and um, and and I I remember I had an event planned in Perth for over the weekend, and um, that's when it that's when we realised COVID is actually a thing. It's it's actually a thing. Like I ignored it for 
probably the longest. <laughs> but then I realized, all right, this is this is probably serious. And um, and I was with my wife and I said to her, look, I'm going to go down to the office and I'm just going to, I'm a martial artist. I've not run a school, um, but I've worked with martial arts school owners for you know, as longer than I've done martial arts. And I thought of this one thing that I could probably bring to the table was my knowledge of running a business online. And can somebody get something out of that that they can provide value through their membership that's not on the mats? You know, if the vehicle of the mats is gone, that it, that it can be done online. So I put together this thing and I, I gave it away for free and I just wanted to make sure we, we could help. And looking back at it now, you know, some 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 of, some of guys did, uh, mostly the jiu-jitsu guys did exactly what, what you did. Uh, shut completely and uh, kept things going for free. I think the karate guys, the taekwondo guys had it a bit easier because Zoom is a bit easier. Uh, I mean, I've got guys in the UK that are still running their Zoom classes and, you know, it's become a, it's become a thing. But it's, it's interesting to look back because a lot of guys that did, did go one path did it successfully, uh, you know, the online thing. Some guys are still trying to get their students back and then the guys that actually cut everything and carried the weight, when they flicked it back on, were in the same situation as you were, that the goodwill carried over and um, nobody had to put in a cancellation, I think was the key thing. Nobody had to assess what are we doing and put in a cancellation and they were able to yeah, open doors and, and carry on. Look, it's also good to take the macro view. Life is long. You know, like. And for people who have been around for a while in the martial arts, the way I looked at it was, you know what, this is just a long service leave that I will never take unless someone's got a gun to my head. So someone did put a gun to my head. So you're taking long service leave. And I went, maybe I should be. <laughs> right? So it's just like that. I, you know, the race is long. I think I think a big lesson, which is one that I would have I've been recommending to people anyway. So, so we can talk about if we talk if we have a discussion about making a living from martial arts. Okay, let's call it business. I don't think of it like that, but we'll we'll say that if you talk about making a living from martial arts, to me, it's not just about how much money you're getting in. I don't think that matters actually that much as much as people think. But you can get in dollars $60, $70,000 a year, that's it, very modest, running a nice little school. But it's what you do with that $60,000 or $70,000 over 15 to 20 years, that will make you fantastically independently wealthy or not. Because I know people who are bought in $300,000 a year, four hundred grand a year, and they still don't own their home. And they've still got credit card debt. Like, right? And I know other people who might only earn $60,000 a year, but 20 years later, they own three, four houses with no debt. So it's not just about the money that comes in, it's how much you're keeping. And I think what a lot of people have got a bucket and the hole in the top of the bucket is the same size as the hole in the bottom of the bucket. And they're wondering why the day after the rain stops coming that they've got, they're dying of thirst. <laughs> I mean, guys, you need to learn how to plug the bottom of the bucket and even a little sprinkle of a rain, meaning the income, will see you with an excess of water. <laughs> so you can't just concentrate on making money. You've got to look at your lifestyle maybe tune that a little bit better and then your investment strategy, maybe tune that a little bit better and create a self-managed super fund so you're not going to get taxed and now you've saved 30% right there and do all these little things and not put all of your attention on, I need another customer. Because <laughs> you know. we've earned, what do you call it, a modest amount of income. It's never been unbelievably good. You know, it's not been hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. Plenty of people earn that. We haven't. But, you know, you, it's easy to accru accrue millions, millions of dollars <laughs> um, and have no debts if you just put it in the right spots 
and learn a tiny bit about self-managed super funds, 401ks, or, you know, in America, IRA Roths. And I'm not talking about BFCS, just spend half an hour a week <laughs> and do that for a year and you'll be ahead of 99% of the planet. So there's that. Read The Richest Man in Babylon and then just double it. Yes. I believe this is what you should do, like not 10%. You should save 100% of one of your two incomes. <laughs> nice. Get, get two jobs or get your wife's got a job or you've got a job or, or work two jobs, suck it up, and save 100% of one of those jobs. And just do that for five or ten years and way, way ahead. But people don't want to do it. Like, Patience and resilience. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> hey, John, thanks so much. I, I do have one more question. Again, at the seminar, you were talking about reevaluating the reasons why you do what you do. Yes. And I wanted to ask you that. Uh, you know, you mentioned the reasons that you train, still train, you, you know, for where you're at in life has yeah. evolved and changed over time. So what is that for you? What still keeps you going? So when I started, it was about, I mean, if you really dig in, it was probably about building self-confidence. You know, if you drill down, I could say, it was about self-defense, but probably really about when you get into some fights, it's not just self-defense that, you, that you're then looking for. It's really about your confidence has taken a hit and you need to build your self-esteem, stuff like that. But people can say self-defense, but unless you're getting into like a fight every week, you're only getting into a couple of fights a year, say, which most people aren't even doing that. But say, say it was a couple of fights a year because you're the kind of personality that can't take a step back, let's say. Then it's still not about self-defense because a couple of fights a year, really, you're going to spend all that money and all that time and get all those injuries. You're better off just having the two fights a year and getting beaten. In terms of the injuries and the money, <laughs> it doesn't make sense. So I think it's about self-esteem. So I start out like that. Then it becomes like you're fascinated with the concept and the way you see yourself, you, you see yourself as this thing. Um, so you have to like, so you don't suffer cognitive dissonance. You have to make the vision that you have in your head and the reality of who you are the same. So that requires training. And then it's like morphs again for me. It morphed into like just the adventure of it all. Like it's just an adventure. It's a, you know, training overseas in different countries, it's like, it's like, it's like the hobbit going on a journey. You know, it's like, you don't know what's going to happen. Some good stuff, some bad stuff. Like COVID was a bad thing, but don't cry because you said you were like, you wanted your life to be an adventure. Well, don't you realize that when you're a hobbit and on an adventure, there's a troll that's trying to eat you. So what, what you're telling me is you don't want all of the adventure. You just want the, Fun bits. That's not an adventure. <laughs> an adventure is the contrast between the bad thing and the good things and the, the grind and the fun day and the lack of money and the money and the hunger and then that nice meal. And, you know, that, that it's an adventure because of contrast. If there's no contrast, you're in hell. <laughs> so... It was then for me about all the adventure and all that stuff. Now, it's not so much like that. For me now, it's about, I like design, like design of putting things together in a more optimal way, which, which goes to design. I like that and problem solving creative problem solving or problem solving that requires creative thinking. I like that stuff. My martial arts practice is a vehicle to just keep that part of my brain, you know, training, like keep, keep it, keep it active. I like doing that. And for me now, it's much more about that and leaving, it sounds a bit weird, but leaving a, a good footprint, leaving a good footprint in the world, leaving a good footprint. 
So I like to do I like to do that. Leave a good footprint. Um, try through teaching because I have to some degree a captive audience when they're on the map. So I can teach them this thing that I like doing myself and that they're there for, and then I can slip in some other stuff when they're not looking to make them maybe live their lives a little bit better and then I'm making a better footprint on the planet. So that's why I do it now. Not not for, not for the money anymore. Love that. And uh, that what you just said, it, it brings things sort of full circle and kind of what I experienced when, you know, when I listened to you at a seminar. It's not, it's not just the, the jiu-jitsu, it's the, the life knowledge and everything else that's being taught in between. Well, I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to get into this whole thing about being a guru, right? Because a lot of martial arts people are, are portraying themselves as some kind of life guru, but if you look at their lives, you do not want their life. They're hollow, in debt on their credit cards, bad relationships, fake, plastic, inauthentic. No, 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 no. So I, I don't want that, but I, I'll just say, listen, I'll, I want to try to live my life by example, and I'm happy to be judged in all every facet of my life. I'm happy to be judged because I'm I'm trying to do the whole thing well, balanced, and then people can make their own decision. So they can go, well, this. They can look and go, you know what? I'm going to listen to this person because they seem to have ticked the boxes. So I'm going to, I'm going to listen. Um, you know, and then they should listen. And then they should listen to a lot of other people. And then they should step back and then make up their own mind about which parts they can take from who to create a better life for themselves. I love that. I'm not sure. <laughs> John, thanks, thanks so much. Um, you know what? I uh, yesterday I walked into one of my favourite little bookshops. It's a niche little bookshop. I pop in there every so often, and uh, and I was pretty lucky, right? Because I walked in and, uh, oh. <laughs> and wow. I saw I saw these three stacked next to each other, and I thought, yeah, that's something I don't see in the bookshop every day. So uh, um, I'd love to say I've read them all, but it's been one day. I'm about ten pages in. Yeah, so they available on. On the website, BJJ. They, they they are on my website, BJJ, or the name of that book, RogueBlackBelt.com. RogueBlackBelt.com. You can get them there as well. Basically, they they were. I mean, it's an autobiography, but it it, it didn't start out to be that. Someone like yourself just asked me a question. They said, "What are the ten best things you've ever learned?" You know, like the 10 best life lessons I've ever had to think about it. I wrote them down and then, oh, but there's that 11, oh, 12, oh, hang on, there's, you can't, this 24, 25. So that in those books were the 60 most important things I'd ever learned. So I wrote them down and then I put them in chronological order and then told the story that went with that lesson. And it turned into an autobiography by accident. Great. Awesome. Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to, to diving in and perhaps I can... I'll swing you in for round two after I've got some more insight. Yeah, of course. <laughs> no problem. Perfect, John. Thanks so much. So, um, rogueblackbelt.com, you mentioned. Yes. And bjj.com.au. Uh, any, anything else? Any, any last words anywhere we should uh, check out any of your seminars or, or any? Uh, they can figure it out. I'm not trying to sell it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, perfect. Oh, well. John, thanks so much for your time. Much appreciated, and I'll I'll catch you on the next one. My pleasure. Thanks, George. Thank you. Cheers. Bye. Awesome. Thanks for listening. If you want to connect with other top smart martial arts school owners and have a chat about marketing, lead generation, what's working now, and or just have a, a gentle rant about things that are happening in the industry, then I want to invite you to join our Facebook group. It's a private Facebook group, and... In there, I share a lot of extra videos and downloads and worksheets, things that are working for us when we work, help school owners grow, and share a couple of video interviews and a bunch of cool extra resources. So uh, it's 
called the Martial Arts Media Community. And an easy way to access it is if you just go to the domain name martialartsmedia.group. So martialartsmedia.group, G-R-O-U-P. There's no .com or anything, martialartsmedia.group. That will take you straight there. Uh, Request to join and I will accept your invitation. Thanks. I'll speak to you on the next episode. Cheers. That will conclude this evening's entertainment. Thanks for listening. If you need help building your martial arts school, check out martialartsmedia.com.